Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. The tragedy of human history is that slavery is almost the norm. Hardly any cultures don't have it. What's the novelty, the radical novelty, is abolition. And who brought that in? The Quakers and the Evangelicals. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. This is a two-part series on politics. Last week, we talked with Dr. Jeff Myers of Summit Ministries about how Christians can think theologically about politics. And this week, we are joined by author and social critic Oz Guinness. Oz is the great, great great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the famous Dublin brewer, and was born in China during World War II, where his parents were medical missionaries. And he was a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949 and was expelled with many other foreigners in 1951, returning to Europe, where he was educated in England, ultimately getting his Doctor of Philosophy in the Social Sciences from Oriel College in Oxford. So Oz has written or edited more than than 30 books, including one of my absolute favorites, a book called The Call. And since moving to the United States in 1984, he's been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies, a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and senior fellow at the Trinity Forum and the East-West Institute in New York. Oz, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me. Well, the honor's mine. Thanks for having me. Recently, uh, I heard you speak at a conference, and I knew immediately that I had to have you on to talk about politics. So politics and Christians, this is an incredibly divisive divisive topic. And I think it's one that isn't 
greatly understood by many Christians. And um, just being honest, it's been hard for me to wrap my head around it. As a Christian, uh, we can try to avoid politics, but I have found that in trying to avoid it, you can inadvertently end up latching onto some bad political views. You know, these past two years have been dizzying for many people. It seems like we've never been more divided or suspicious of each other. And you don't come from an exclusively American background. And so I'm very interested in your perspective on this as well. And I'd love for you uh, to start today by just giving us the short version of your testimony. How did you come to put saving faith in Christ? Well, thank you. As you said, I come from an Irish brewing family. My great-grandfather, at the grand old age of 23, was the lead preacher in the Irish revival of 1859. And his son, my grandfather, was one of the first Western doctors to go to China. So I come from a missionary family. And as you said, I was there my first 10 years. But while the revolution started, my parents, I was there two years under the reign of terror, and my parents sent me back to school in England, and they weren't allowed out for another two years. So I actually came to faith through a kind of intellectual debate in my mind when I was at boarding school. On the one hand, people like Nietzsche, Sartre, and my hero then as a teenager, Albert Camus. And on the Christian side, people like G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and of course, C.S. Lewis. And I was eventually convinced that the Christian faith was true. But then found myself as an undergraduate at London University, the 60s, drug, sex, rock and roll, all that sort of stuff. It was a decade you have to think back to square one on everything. If you believed, you had to know why you believed over against the 1001 challenges. So then through Labrie, that was the place I was able to develop a thinking faith, which has stood me in great stead, you know, ever since. So I'm involved sometimes in apologetics, making sense of the gospel to those outside the church, and sometimes in cultural analysis, making sense of the world to fellow Christians within the church. But it's been a wonderful privilege to try and do that. Well, you do it very well. And in your book, uh, Magna Carta, you talk about two revolutionary faiths that are essentially bidding against each other to take the world forward. And you identify this as the choice uh, between Sinai and Paris. And I think this is such a fascinating thesis. Can you tell us what you mean by that? What is the difference between Sinai and Paris? And how are we affected by those paths today? Well, that dives straight in as to what is the central political problem in America today, the crisis. And, you know, America's more deeply divided than at any moment since just before the Civil War. But why? It's not coastals against heartlanders or the impact of the social media or whatever. It's between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which is largely, but sadly not fully, biblical, coming from the Reformation and the Old Testament. And those who understand American freedom coming from the ideas that have flowed down from the French Revolution. Put it in biblical terms, Elisa. You know, Paul writes to the Galatians, who's bewitched you? You came to faith through a gospel of grace, and you're now trusting a gospel of works. 
you're following another gospel. And what I'm saying in effect is to America, who's bewitched you? Mm. Your revolution came out of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Sinai revolution through the Reformation, and you're now following ideas that come down from the French Revolution, and they will lead in entirely different directions, and it will spell the end of the American Republic as the founders set it up and as the world has known it. So that difference is absolutely crucial. Yeah, I'd love to dig down into that difference because many people may not be aware of those histories, especially in light of recent attempts to redefine history and sort of revise American history. Um, so let's start with the American side of things. When you talk about America flowing out of the Old Testament and the Reformation, what do you mean? What What is the history there? Because as you know, there is huge debates right now, even among Christians. Should we call America a Christian nation? Are you a Christian national? if you consider America a Christian nation, and I suspect you've got an opinion on some of those things. Yes, strongly so. But let's go back to the roots. Many Americans don't realize that the 17th century was called the biblical century after the Reformation in the 16th, and people were fascinated, even atheists like Thomas Hobbes, with what they called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Americans don't realize the covenant lies behind the U.S. Constitution and notions like the consent of the governed or the separation of powers and various things like this, they all come from the book of Exodus. They don't come from the Greeks or the Romans or medieval philosophy. They come from the scriptures. And so when we say, was America Christian? America was never formally, officially, nationally Christian, like, say, England was Anglican and France was Catholic. No. But at the time of the Revolution, more than 90% of Americans were out of a Reformation background, and all the ideas were from the Scriptures. And we've got to explore what they are, because they're very important to freedom. And the ideas coming from the French Revolution are drastically different. So when you're talking about the history of the American nation being covenantal, coming out of the Reformation and a, more of a biblical, I would say, worldview, um, how would you interact with some of this revisionist history that's coming around saying, you know, actually, all of these people that you're saying had a biblical worldview, were keeping slaves, and we have all these, you know, dark things in our history. How do you reconcile some of those things with the history of America? Well, that's why I said it was mostly, but not completely, biblical and Christian. But the great contradiction was slavery. Now, of course, the Europeans could see that from the start. So you had someone like Samuel Johnson, crusty old uh, writer of the world's first English dictionary. He could see an ocean away that this was a contradiction. He said, why is it that those, in his words, yelping about freedom are the drivers of Negroes? It was an obvious vile contradiction. But as you also know, people like Samuel Hopkins tried to argue against it on Christian grounds and were overwhelmed numerically. And my family were a friend of William Wilberforce. Now, you know, abolition is a great evangelical success story. 
So my family knew him and supported him. He pleaded first with Thomas Jefferson and then secondly with President Monroe to do something. And sadly, they didn't. So there's no question that American slavery is evil, sinful, hip hypocritical, and a vile contradiction of its biblical roots. Some people try to argue that America was sort of founded as a way to sanction slavery, to be able to, you know, keep slaves. I wonder if you could interact with that a little bit as well. Well, that's absolute nonsense. Just take what I said about the way the covenant underlies constitution. You know, the, the Catholic Church in 380, when Rome became officially Christian, copied Roman structures of governance. They were hierarchical, they were based on power, and they were corrupted. Think of the Inquisition. The Reformation said no. Hierarchical government is not biblical. What is covenantal? And you can see in Calvin and then in uh, Zurich, Zwingli and Bullinger, and in Scotland, Knox, and in England, Cromwell. But more importantly for America, the Mayflower Compact was a covenant. When John Winthrop preached the famous sermon on the Arbella, he was talking about covenant. And when John Adams drafted the first written constitution, which was the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he calls it a covenant. Now, all that long precedes slavery, which, as you know, came in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia. Evangelicals were pro-abolition. And we've got to remember, if you look at history, the tragedy of human history is that slavery is almost the norm. Hardly any cultures don't have it. What's the novelty, the radical novelty, is abolition. And who brought that in? The Quakers and the evangelicals. Now, the tragedy of I come from European background. I'm still European. I'm not American. Great admirer. We have no guilt in England because abolition was Christian and evangelical. But here, of course, Americans had this residual guilt from the worst of the Southern uh, justification of slavery, and they never got over it. We should thank God that the abolitionists in America and in Europe were evangelicals, and we should stand in their shoes and be champions rightly of justice, in other words, heirs of the great Hebrew prophets. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think, because what you're describing is is entirely true, and, and slavery still exists all over the world. I have friends who uh, do ministry in Asia where they they work and raise money to free slaves in Asia, and there's, of course, human trafficking all over the world. Why do you think that America seems to be so fixated on this this one sin from the past? Well, America was slow in getting rid of it. Uh, which is a shame, and more importantly, it is vile. But the point is, today, it's material that is easy for the radical left to exploit. And you can see that in a Swiss thinker like Jakob Burkhardt. He talks about unexploding material left over, which the radical left can always exploit. And the guilt in America and the unaddressed problems of slavery are there as material for the radical left to exploit. Now, of course, they're making it worse. 
if you look at the great reformers, you know, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Booker T. Washington, that's supremely Martin Luther King, all of them Christians. And they appealed to the Declaration. And they believed in the Declaration. Martin Luther King called it a promissory note, which was time to cash it in. So the civil rights movement removed most of the legal institutional problems. But the radical left, cultural Marxism, is exploiting them and actually taking America back. And sadly, there are far too many Christians who've drunk the Kool-Aid. They hear the word justice, leap to their feet and salute, and they don't realize they're taking over ideas, not from the Hebrew prophets, not from our Lord, but from Black Lives Matter and other cultural Marxist ideologies. And that's disastrous. Okay, so let's get into the French Revolution side of things, because one of the things that was so fascinating from your lecture at the conference that we were both attending was that you trace the history of, it just seemed to make such perfect sense to me as you're tracing the history of how we got to where we are today and how we interact with each other in the realm of ideas from, uh, I believe it was a philosopher in a jail cell back, or in, I could be remembering that wrong, but you traced it back to a philosopher that goes even before some of the ones that we talk about as being sort of these thinkers that began some of these Marxist ideas even before Marx. So, so give us some of that history, because I think that will be very enlightening for people who may not realize how we've gotten to the place where it seems very difficult to have any sort of a discussion in the public square about reality because if you make a truth claim or you make any kind of claim to what is true about reality, people don't seem to have the ability to interact with the claim itself, but immediately they're looking for what's the power grab underneath the truth claim that you're making, and it makes it very difficult to have conversation. So give us some of that history. Well, a quick potted summary. The French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. But while Napoleon came and said the revolution is over, like a huge volcanic explosion, the lava flow has really flowed out ever since. The first great flow is the one people know about least. It's called revolutionary nationalism. Leave that to one side. The second is the one we mostly know, which is revolutionary socialism, or in one word, communism. The Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, and so on. Classical Marxism. But that's not what's touching America. And this is where Christians have unfortunately overlooked the real problem. The third lava flow is what's called cultural Marxism, or neo-Marxism, or Western Marxism. And that goes back to a gentleman in Italy, as you said, Antonio Gramsci, who sat in jail as a Marxist under Mussolini and wrote a big fat book called The Prison Notebooks. And he shifted the ideas of revolution from the proletariat and industrial strikes and all that sort of stuff to what he called the cultural gatekeepers. Now, his ideas were picked up by the Frankfurt School And importantly for this country, the leader of the Frankfurt School in America in the 60s was Herbert Marcuse, University of San Diego. And he was in many ways the godfather of the new left. And towards the end of the 60s, he and a German radical called for what they termed a long march through the institutions. I first came here as a tourist, 68. 
a hundred American cities were ablaze, far, far more than 2020. And yet, although Martin Luther King had been assassinated, Senator Kennedy assassinated, the radicals realized they wouldn't win in the streets. So the long march, they would infiltrate the schools, universities, and colleges, the press and the media, and the world of Hollywood and entertainment. And then when they'd won those thinking classes, you could sweep round and win the whole culture. Now, that was 50 years ago, and you can see how extraordinarily well they've done it. And maybe the most surprising area of all is what we now call woke business. Mm. Everyone in Europe would say that, you know, the last fortress of conservatism would be American business. That's gone because the radical left ideas have come in through HR departments and so on. And as you know well, Elisa, they've touched so many of the Christian colleges. So you have progressive Christian thinking, much of which is incredibly uncritical about these ideas. So the, help us understand how this traced through the French Revolution. We've talked a bit about the American Revolution, and you've called that, you know, essentially coming from more of a biblical uh, principle based in the Old Testament. What happened with the French Revolution, and how did we see some of these ideas manifest in that? Well, let me just point out some of the, the, the obvious differences. Different sources. One is the Bible. The other is the French Enlightenment. Or different views of humanity. The biblical understanding of humanity is we're fallen, so you need checks and balances. You need a separation of powers. All power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The French Revolution, utopian. Or you can look at freedom. The American Revolution, based on the scripture, has a high view of freedom. The French Revolution, radical and secular, has always denied freedom in the long run. And you could say their revolutions never succeed and their oppressions never end. But currently, the last two or three years, the central difference has been justice. Now, when it comes to justice, it's different from freedom. Both sides agree there is injustice. You take the killing of, say, George Floyd. Almost everybody agreed that was wrong, terribly wrong, evil, unjust. The difference comes in how you address it. In other words, the radical left, cultural Marxism, what it does is you analyze the speech of a community or a country to look for who's the majority who's the minority, and who's the oppressor, and who's the victim. Then when you have a victim, you're, you're, you're not concerned with individuals, you're concerned with groups, women, blacks, queers, the obese, whatever it is. And then you weaponize the group to set up a conflict of powers. Now, remember that postmodernism tied in with cultural Marxism. So within postmodernism, God is dead. And truth is dead. So all you have left is power and force. So you're setting up a conflict of powers. And the Romans are incredibly clear of the result. The only peace you can possibly have, if everything is power, is the peace of despotism. Why? Because you need a power capable of putting down all other powers. And so you have authoritarianism in the modern world 
totalitarianism. Now you compare that, and I'm not going to spell it out because you know it well, but you take the biblical way of addressing injustice, prophetic truth addressed to power, and a call for confession and repentance, and then forgiveness, and then reconciliation. Move on down the line. All the things that are at the heart of the gospel truly deal with the wrong and put it right. And you have a very, very different situation that restores freedom and peace and so on. So the radical left will be a disaster. And the Christian progressives who haven't really opened their eyes to it are simply naive and incredibly foolish. Mm. So a moment ago, you hinted at the idea of two different views about the nature of humanity. And I'd love to really um, expound on that a little bit for our viewers who may not get the connection between how we view what kind of a thing we are as humans. I think looking out into culture, what I see coming at my kids in the media that's uh, made for them and even at all of the even Christian, quote unquote, Christian materials that are marketed specifically to women and women's Bible studies, the message is you're perfect just as you are. In fact, there's a progressive book I talk about that says, hey, the gospel, the Christian gospel says, you're enough just as you are. You don't need to change anything about yourself. You just need to sort of realize that you have this inherent core of goodness, this inner spark of divinity that you need just to lay hold of and that everything will be fine. And this is the message that is marketed to our kids and marketed to us. And it really comes down to the question, are humans basically good or are humans basically sinful? And I think out of that flows so many of these different paths. But I wonder if you could expound on that as you see that trace through political lines, just how if you think people are basically good, what does that mean politically? If you think pe people are basically sinful, what's that going to mean politically? Yeah. Well, you could look at it in all sorts of ways. Start with Rousseau himself, one of the thinkers behind the French Revolution, or Wilhelm Reich, who's behind the sexual revolution. You know, uh, Rousseau says, man is born free, but everywhere's in chains. In other words, you remove a chain or two, whatever oppression you find, and we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. And you read Wilhelm Reich, who says the problem is sexual repression. So we've got to affirm sex at every single level, starting with three-year-olds. And then we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. Well, that is utopian nonsense. You know, I was at Oxford with Sir Isaiah Berlin, the great Jewish philosopher. And he always insisted freedom is negative and positive. Negative freedom is freedom from. Positive freedom is freedom for. No one who's under a dictator or drugs or alcohol or an abusive spouse or a bully in the schoolyard, none of those people are free. They're under something. And the biblical uh, radical definition, we are basically under sin. In other words, we're not naturally free. To be free, we have to be set free. And you have to start with the negatives. Positive freedom, freedom for, requires truth. So if I'm free to be, well, the question is, what am I? Am I an animal? Are you a machine? Or are we made in the image of God? You have to know the truth to be free to be true to who you are. 
And of course, in the postmodern world, there is no truth. So it's all feelings. So does a young woman feel she's a man or a man feels she's a woman? Who cares about biology? We just follow your feelings. And that will lead into a harvest of chaos and confusion built on absolute nonsense by flouting creation. Do you think this is why so many people who seem to embrace this idea that man is inherently good, that that we just need to find the goodness inside, do you think that might be why they're looking out into things like institutions and saying, well, it's not us, you know, nothing's wrong with us, so there must be something wrong out there. Do you think that might be um, part of where some of this critical social justice is coming from? No, very much so. In other words, if we're basically good, it must be some institution, some tradition or whatever is oppressing us. And so you want to throw them off. So they do it in the name of liberation. Mm. But the end result is a deeper bondage and a deeper serfdom than ever. And so we've got to look at the whole history of the radical left. As I said earlier, the radical left has never succeeded. And it has always ended in deepening oppression. And certainly Christians should never be naive and should have their eyes open and look carefully at the roots of things. The one place I agree with Nietzsche, the grand old atheist, he says, to understand an idea, you need to know its genealogy, its ancestry, its family tree. Because if you know where ideas come from, you realize what they're going to be. And so I live in Virginia. One of our wonderful friends, Glenn Youngkin, was elected governor last year, partly thanks to all the Loudoun County controversies over critical race theory and CRT. What was extraordinary, though, was how many Christians had never heard of CRT, never heard yeah. of critical race theory. And when they first heard of it, they thought it went back to Derrick Bell at the Harvard Law School in the 1970s. And they didn't realize it goes all the way back to the 20s to Antonio Gramsci and people like that. And it's not just critical race. You have critical women's studies, critical queer studies, critical fat studies, and so on. And all of them are designed to be revolutionary. You know, I was amused recently to read the school that our Princess Anne went to. The current headmistress said she likes the term woke because she, this is one of the elite schools in Europe. She said it, to me, just means alert to justice. And I thought, how incredibly naive. Woke is a nice term to counter what used to be called conscientization and other uglier terms. But you're not only alert to justice, you're alive to revolution. And what they're about is basically subversion. So someone like Wilhelm Reich says, we are out to subvert 3,000 years of civilization, the Jewish roots as well as the 2,000 years of the church's roots. So Christians who are naive to this, oh, put it another way, you've done a magnificent job calling people back from the faithfulness of liberal theological revisionism. But you know, ever since Schleiermacher in the 18th century, Evangelicals, by and large, have stood firm against theological liberalism. But now, not theological liberalism, although that's still part of the challenge, but the sexual revolution and the cultural revolution 
Christians are capitulating, compromising, surrendering at a pace which is unprecedented. With many of them, it's just plain naivety. That's why I was just going to ask you, why? Why? That's the thing that has so many people scratching their heads. Uh, one example, you mentioned critical race theory. There have been several voices try to push back against what just seems to be an obvious push for these ideas that underline critical race theory. And from so many of even evangelical elites at times, it seems, there's this idea that if you're saying that, you've just created this boogeyman that doesn't really exist. Nobody really buys into critical race theory. And if you're saying it, you probably just just you're a little bit racist and you're trying to uphold this white supremacy. And um, I, I know that it can be incredibly frustrating for many who are trying to say, no, we, we've actually sought to understand what critical race theory is and what it means. And we think it's a bad solution to racism, certainly not denying that racism exists. But, you know, this is not the answer. Why do you think so many People who should know better, the evangelical elites that are that seem to be drifting into the progressive left, why can't they see it or why do they refuse to see it? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, let's add another dimension to the challenge. You mentioned the confusion over politics from the beginning. Up till the early 70s, most evangelicals were called what's termed officially privatized. In other words, their theology was a warm-hearted pietism. That's wonderful. But it was what's called privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. So evangelicals missed the 1960s with very few exceptions. Then they woke up in 1970s, Roe v. Wade, the rise of moral majority, and many of them swung from one extreme to another, from being overly privatized to being overly politicized. In other words, politicization comes from the radical left too, it comes from Rousseau. The idea that politics is the be all and end all of everything, it's not. The old saying was that the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. It's very important, but it's downstream from the church and worship and family life and all sorts of good things that are above politics. So when we're politicized, and the trouble is when evangelicals swung from being privatized to being politicized, they just fell in line with the politics of their time. And there were many, let's put it bluntly, pro-Trump or against Trump. And often, whether you were pro him or against him became more important than we were following Jesus as Lord. In other words, we were politicized. And as you know, part of the problem in America today, America at large, is being no longer democracy, but rather an oligarchy. And the gap between people, the populists, Hillary Clinton's deplorables, Obama's people who cling to their God and their guns, and the elite, the experts, the specialists, and so on, has never been wider. But that's mm. oligarchic, not democratic. And the trouble is here, you've got another division within evangelicals. You've got those who followed populist politics, and then you've got those who followed more educated elitist politics. And sadly, both of them sold out. Mm. One for 
kind of pro-Trump and the other two are never Trump. We need to really unite under the lordship of Jesus. Mm. His lordship is higher than any political position. The tragedy of America was the way in the Civil War, the issues divided the church. The church should never be divided in politics. So what's the how there? Because it just seems like, I mean, like you mentioned, we have never been more divided. And I think there's just this inherent suspicion, too, that, that people have with each other. Um, when you say Christians need to be united under the lordship of Jesus, I, I know that every Christian listening is saying, amen. But then the solution for that, for so many, is going to look so radically different um, and, it's ex and, and often extreme. So what would be your advice to Christians? How can we engage politically under the lordship of Jesus Christ, making that our, our priority as citizens of, this of, of our heavenly kingdom, but earthly citizens of, of our country? Um, how, do we, how do we come together? How do we do it? Well, you probably read, as many did, that article that came out not so long ago about evangelical dissidents who were trying to save evangelicalism from itself. The striking thing about the article, they were people on the more liberal side protesting people on the more conservative side, but they never ever said what evangelicalism was. In fact, many of them are almost giving up on evangelicalism. I'm an unashamed evangelical. Evangelicalism is deeper than either Catholicism or Orthodoxy, I can say so bluntly. It's those who define their lives and their faith by the good news of Jesus, as you see predicted by Isaiah in chapter 61 or announced by our Lord in Luke 4. The good news of freedom for the captive and so on. That's evangelicalism. So we should be unashamed evangelicals and therefore look at politics in the light of that. So depending on who I'm talking to, I was on a Zoom with some pastors from the West Coast earlier last year. I said to some of them after the first Zoom, you guys have drunk the Kool-Aid. They had never read cultural Marxism. They were spouting it to me as if it was gospel. But equally on the other side, take, for instance, the former president, his policies were mostly incredibly good, certainly by comparison with his successor. But his character, his tweets were abominable. The biblical idea of words is there such a thing as evil speech, which is tantamount to murder. Words create worlds, words destroy worlds. We should be the guardians of worlds. And Christians who supported Mr. Trump should have said, Mr. Trump, mind your language. An American reformation has to begin with a reformation of words and the way we use words, especially with our opponents. And Christians should be in the forefront of standing for truth and words and freedom and justice, but all of them under the Lordship of Jesus. That's good. And, uh, you know, I've been involved in conversations with some Christians about that word evangelical because uh, I'm, I'm sort of heartened to hear you say that we should keep using it, but possibly redeem it as for what it was originally intended to mean. And yet, in the eyes of so many people, uh, even people who are Christians, when you use the word evangelical, to them, it is synonymous with 
you know, white supremacy. It's synonymous with Christian nationalism. It's synonymous with uh, some idea of rabid Trump support. Whether you know whether or not that's a fair characterization or not, that's the way it's viewed. And so I've heard some people say, you know, we should just pick a different word. I'm curious to know why. Uh, considering even your criticisms of, of Mr. Trump and all of this, why do you think we should try to hold on to that word and and use it unabashedly? Well, abandoning the word because of politicization is an example of politicization. The word is a theological word first. It's not political. So, for example, when Francis of Assisi, whom we'd all admire, when he told the Pope he wanted to live as close to the way Jesus lived, the Pope said to him, you're an evangelical. Many people don't know the Protestant reformers didn't call themselves Protestants. They called themselves evangelical. Protestant was actually a word their enemies foisted on them, and it was purely negative. So you take abolition. There would have been no abolition without evangelicals. Those who led it, both in England and America, were the evangelicals. And you have people like John Woolman behind them, Quaker, and then the great evangelicals like William Wilberforce and so on. So we should be incredibly proud. Evangelicalism has no blood on its hands like, say, other branches of the church, which I'm not going to mention. We have no inquisition. You look at the rise of freedom of conscience, Roger Williams, and so on. These are evangelicals. We've got an incredible tradition. Now, we've got to define it theologically. I'm extremely proud and unashamed to be an evangelical. I define my faith and my life by the good news of Jesus. It's good. I like that. So um, I want to ask you, a couple of words, the word truth, and then we'll go to the word justice. But let's start with the word truth. You mentioned earlier that uh, according to this sort of postmodern mood that seems to be dominating culture, truth is really more synonymous with your feelings. It's not really rooted in objective reality. If if objective truth exists, it can't be known. And I suspect this is why when you do claim to know something that's true, people are very suspicious of you. They think you're trying to bid for power or trying to maintain an institution or perhaps, uh, you know, trying, to, maybe it's arrogant in their view because no one can know these things. Uh, according to these two streams that we're tracing here today, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, Paris and Sinai, uh, what are the two definitions of truth that undergird those two movements? Well, think of all the areas in our lives where we assume and require truth. You couldn't have science without truth. You can't have responsible journalism without truth. I mean, fake news and all that is really undermining the credibility totally of the best American newspapers today. But you can't have business without truth because truth and trustworthiness leads to trust and business and freedom depend on trust. But at the simplest level, our families. If there's no truth, trust is undermined. So truth is incredibly simple, but incredibly important. And of course, the attack on truth goes back to Nietzsche, what he calls perspectivism. There are many eyes, so there's no one truth. And so he was the one who says, if God is dead, then truth is dead and everything left is power. 
Now, there's a huge problem in just power, but there's an equal problem in no truth. And we've got to recognize where that comes from. Nietzsche, although it was The Economist in 2016 that put it on its cover. But if America loses truth, America's finished as a free country. Our Lord wasn't kidding. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, turn that around. If you don't know the truth, the lies will ruin freedom. What role so, do you think? No, go ahead and finish your thought there. No, go on. Well, I was just going to say, what what role, you know, with this application of truth um, and hanging on to that, why is that so important for America? Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking about some of the criticisms I've seen, even when I'll post an article and I'm thinking about some of the criticisms that I see. Uh, you know, you just have this, and I don't, I don't actually talk a lot about America, but it seems like there's this criticism of if you're pro-America or if you think America is a great nation or if you even hold the opinion it's greater than other nations, then you have this, this overly politicized Christian nationalistic view. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on some of the critiques that you see of, of Americans who might be vocal about their political opinions being called Christian nationalism. I mean, Christian nationalists. Is there some truth to it? Uh, do you think it's largely maybe like a straw man people are beating at, or is there some truth to it? I, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that charge or that criticism of Christian nationalism? Well, it's a very common criticism among the more educated evangelicals. And I say, I would just say to them that they're not self-critical. Now, mm. where does it come from? In the old days, most people were local. You know, when I lived in a while in Switzerland, we had neighbors who'd never been so much as a mile up the road to the next village. Their whole life was lived in their village. Now, I was born in one continent, grew up and educated in another, and I'm living in a third one. And there's hardly a country in the northern hemisphere that I haven't visited. We're in a globalized world, and my experience is not that unusual. But in the global world, People who are globalized are not only against the local, they're against the national. Because national governments are the blockage to that one world government that the globalized elite. And you can read, say, H.G. Wells back in 1900, or you can read Klaus Schwab and the so-called World Economic Forum from Davos Reset a couple of years ago. For them, if you're looking for that global government, Nations are the problem. So people now who are very aware of what it is to be global are usually a little sus uh, suspicious of the national. Now, the real chat, we're not afraid of the global. Abraham was promised that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, the Great Commission is all about the whole world. So Christians are global in their DNA. But we're also local. Give us today our daily bread. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And we're just little finite people. So even, say, the titans of the world and their super yachts and their private planes, they have to live one day at a time like the rest of us. And they have little bodies like the rest of us. And the challenge, I love the fact, you know the fact, George Washington's favorite quote from scripture. I don't know if you know it. I don't. Four, no, 48 times in his letters, he writes about living under our own vine and fig tree. 
And that, of course, comes from the Old Testament. And he writes about that to the Jews on Newport, Rhode Island. It's a picture of the local family, personal freedom and contentment and simplicity. And if ever we needed that, it's today. But we need to have a strong view of the global. We can think globally. We can act globally, like praying for the world. We can pray for countries we can't get to. We don't have the money to, or they wouldn't let us in. We should be global people, but also know that we live wherever our homes are, and that's the core of our discipleship. We should, of all people, be local and global. But our sophisticated college-educated people don't realize they've picked up the globalist critique, so they criticize nations. I like George Orwell. The love of your country is patriotism, and we all should love somewhere. I'm Irish. But at the same time, nationalism can be dangerous and become an idol. But not all patriotism is nationalism. So, for example, Elisa, last year, some of these smart Alex accused me of being an American Christian nationalist. Well, I'm not American. And I've written endless critiques of American civil religion and anti-idolatry. But I am a passionate admirer of the best of the American system. I'm not American. If I were, I'd be a patriot. So there's nothing wrong with patriotism. That's good. Um, very quickly, I have a couple more questions for you, but I want to get to the definitions of justice because I think this is an area that so many people are confused about, and this can trickle into politics in a very significant way. So what would that Sinai definition of justice be versus the Paris definition of justice? Well, remember that God is a God of justice. And the call of the Jews... The Jews wonder, why on earth did the Lord call us? Well, the only express statement of why is in Genesis, I think somewhere around chapter 19, I can't remember, where the Lord says, I want you to parent your children from generation to generation and teach them the ways of righteousness and justice. So justice is at the core. But what's interesting is that right from the beginning in that verse and all the way through the prophets, justice is double-barreled. In other words, it's personal righteousness and integrity, honesty and all that, as well as public justice, institutional and all that. So we've got to be champions of both of those. So as you see in the prophets, it's the way humans made in the image of God deal with other humans made in the image of God, which is the heart of justice. It's relational. So it's not purely institutional, the radical left, again, remove the bad institutions, and they exaggerate those, and then we'll all be happy, free, and just. Nonsense. We are the problem. And the basic problem is in relationships. We've got to go back to that, that double-barreled biblical view of justice, and then we should be the greatest champions of justice that there are on the earth. That's good. Um I want to ask you a question that I heard you answer uh, in person, and it persuaded me because I think I was one of those people that was like, yeah, you know, as Christians, we just need to live quiet lives, keep our nose down, be ready to suffer. And I, we certainly do. Like, we need to be ready to 
be persecuted for the name of Christ. We need to be ready to suffer in all circumstances as Christians. But you gave such an interesting answer to the question, shouldn't American Christians just detach from politics and just keep our heads down? You know, if you look at the first century Christians, they were not going around trying to get people to be involved in politics. So why, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that either. I'd love to hear your comments on that. Well, that's an interesting question because I, I hear that all over the country. I just need to be faithful in my small corner. I'm not going to be bothered by the country as a whole. Why is that disastrous? Well, for two reasons. First, we're called to be salt and light, and those are symbols of penetration and engagement. So the scandal of the American church is that, well, tiny groups like our Jewish friends, 2% of America, but they punch well above their weight and have an incredible influence right through culture and ideas and finance and so on. And we, who are a huge majority, are not salty and not life-faring. Now, that's a failure of discipleship. But I think the problem is deeper. People say my parallel is the early church. Now, the early church is under an empire, a dictatorship. They had zero room to move politically under the Caesars. But my word, they were faithful, even dying for it rather than being compromised. But the American Republic is based on the Hebrew Republic. And in the Hebrew Republic, one of the great principles was the reciprocal responsibility of everyone for everyone. So the Jews put it, every Jew is responsible for every Jew. We, the people, there's a collective solidarity. Now, American, every American is actually responsible for the American Republic to the limits of their calling, speaking, living, Christianly assault and light. So for American Christians to quit and just keep their heads down is to help the republic commit suicide. It's a disaster. And Americans need to understand where their system came from and play their part. Otherwise, you'll get the government you deserve, which will be anti-Christian and far from free. And that's what's coming closer and closer because Christians aren't making the difference that they should. We've been talking today about your book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. But I know you have a new book that just came out, and I'd love to give you the opportunity to tell us about that book and what's it called and what's it about. A very different book. It's called The Great Quest, and it's basically a thinking person's quest for meaning. So you can put this in grand civilizational terms. You know, the crisis of the West is that it's turned against the Jewish and Christian faiths that made it. Or you can say the crisis of America is that the American intellectuals have turned against the faith that made America and also the revolution that made America. So these issues are incredibly important on the grand level, but I'm far more interested in individuals. You know, you see the so-called rising nuns, refugees from the faith. Many of them clearly have no understanding of what the faith is. If the Christian faith is true, it would be true if no one believed it. If it's false, it would be false even if every last person in the country believed it. So we need Christians who know who they believe, our Lord, 
They know what they believe and all that it means, but they know why they believe what they believe. So I've written the book for seekers, and it outlines the phases of which people go through when they're searching for the meaning of life. It's not heavily laden with Christian jargon. I hope it's a book people can give to seekers, and the first responses have been very encouraging. Very good. As we close out here, I'm going to ask you one final question. Uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say to everybody watching and listening anything you want to say to them on this topic, but also I want to know, as a non-American, why do you care what happens with Christians and their political engagement in America? Why is that something that matters to you? Well, I think we're at an extraordinary stage in world affairs and history of civilizations. Western civilization, created by the gospel, is the most powerful civilization ever because it has a global impact. And here we are at a civilizational moment, a crisis in the West, with the rise of autocracies like Russia, China, North Korea, and so on, with things like singularity and the exponential rise of artificial technology in the wings, we're an extraordinary moment for humanity. And at this moment, what does America represent? Well, at one level, the world's best attempt at ordered freedom. And if it's thrown away, squandered by a generation, that is a tragedy, a waste on a historic scale. But not only that, the American church is still the largest Christian community in the Western world, far bigger than, say, France or Britain or Sweden or Australia or whatever. It would be a tragedy if the church in America missed its moment. So that's my passion. You know the idea of the men of David who read the signs of the times or, or St. Paul's incredible description of David, King David, who served God's purpose in his generation. We're at an extraordinary moment, and I'm grateful for people like you standing with courage for faithfulness. But the central issue of our time for Christians is trust in the Lord and faithfulness lived out in society. Very good. Well, I want to thank my guest, Os Guinness, for joining me today for this discussion. If you're listening on audio platforms, it really helps if you click subscribe, if you leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening. If you're watching on YouTube, click subscribe. Make sure you click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. We've got some great conversations coming up for you in future episodes. But for now, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.